the gospel according to John, chapter 19, John 19, and we may read again from verse 32. John 19 from verse 32. Then came the soldiers and raised the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was dead already. They break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it made record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he said true, that he might believe. Especially the last part of the 34th verse. And forthwith came there up blood and water. Any question. 
that darkness. All that happened at the cross of Christ. This made an indelible impression on the mind of John. Why should he record this? And who with this came out blood and water? At least the sight of blood was nothing unusual at the crucifixion. Jesus and those who were crucified with him were full of blood from their own wounds. But why should John take special notice of the blood that came up after the Roman soldier had pierced Christ's side with a spear? He doesn't say whether the quantity was small or large. He doesn't say how much there was of blood or water. He does not even mention the size that was pierced, whether it was the right or the left. But he does mention a mention with an obvious purpose that from his side came that holy blood and water. Augustine, in one of his sermons, draws a parallel between Christ and Adam at this point. <clears throat> we may not agree, but certainly his uh, opinion is worthy of consideration. He says something to this effect. The first Adam was made to that deep sleep. And then the Lord took from his side the rib of which he made the woman. The second Adam, sleeping the sleep of death, has his side pure. And out of it there comes water and blood. That is, that, that which is the means, that of which is born, as he puts it, the church of God, the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb. It is quite obvious. That in this John sees the salvation 
of all such things. For we must remember that the evangelists tell their story against the background of the Old Testament ritual. They are conscious of delineating according to Old Testament prediction the Messiah that was to come the sacrifice for sin the means of salvation and what John mentions blood and water and in that order he means us to call to mind the way of approach to God according to the Old Testament ritual. You remember that entering into the holy place, the first thing that confronted one was the altar of first offering. When the blood of the sacrificial victim was poured out an oblation unto God. And after the altar of burnt offering was the labor had to wash in water before they entered further into the holy place. It is against this ritual that we must understand the evangelist delineation of the Messiah, their description of the Lamb of God that was to take away the sin of the world. Death Now another point that you remember is this. In the strict sense of the term, the thrust of the spear was not part of the conscious suffering of Christ. For it is put beyond any question that he was already dead. When the soldiers came, they found that he was already dead. But to make assurance doubly sure, one of the soldiers pierced the side with speed. And this, of course, puts beyond any question that the body of Jesus was not the son 
had ethical sex. Even in John's day, healthy to be. It was a real body. Out of the side there came blood and water. Of course, in all ages, skeptics and infidels have tried to ridicule this. Nobody, of course, has ever tried to prove that this was unimportant according to John's estimate of things. But some have tried to prove that this was impossible. We, would, we, we must remember that the body of Jesus through the wounds of the nails in his hands and feet was almost drained of blood. And because of this they have said that there was no room for any more blood to flow forth. Yea, that there was no more blood to flow forth. It would take too much of your time to enter into the medical aspect of this situation. It has been done by very able and learned men qualified to pass judgment on this aspect of But we are not concerned with that at the moment. Suffice it to say that there was nothing inherently impossible. Nothing even improbable in this taking place. But even if there were, what difference would that make? We are dealing here with a unique situation. One that does not admit of comparison with any other situation. What might be of course in other cases would not be of course here. That is, if we admit that here was a unique transaction that transcends all analogy and for which there can be no comparison. we ask again of the blood and the water. Probably the water, if we look at upon it in a natural way, came from the pericardium of the sack that surrounds the heart. The sack that is the full of liquid. That may or may not be so. In any case, what is important is what John observed and what he presents for our consideration. Blood and water. 
So if you will read the chief chapter of his first edition, you will find that the order is reversed. He says that this is he who came to water and blood. Even Jesus Christ. Here he says, blood and water. Now, what if we are to understand anything specific from the reversal of the order? I don't know. But I do say that here, John places the blood on the water in a certain relationship, which is the relationship of Christian experience, though it may not be the logical order. He writes these things, and it tells us that he has a purpose in so doing that we may believe. But what is he to believe? No one can believe in a vacuum. What does he to believe? That Jesus Christ was the Son of God. That Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God that gave it away from the sin of the world. But how does he take away the sin of the world? By blood and water. And we are not that to conjecture in the Zeller. The scriptures full of this interpretation. And the scripture will admit of no other interpretation. Of course, we may take it or leave it. We may refuse to accept what the scripture set forth. We may prefer our own thinking, and many do. But we should not make the mistake of trying to read out of the scripture or to read into the scripture what is not there. He writes that we might believe, so that in believing we might have life. What we repeat as we to believe, that Christ takes away sin, and that he does so in this way. What then does the blood in this particular context set before? What are we to understand then from? What aspect of Christ's saving work is particularly and specifically emphasized? Well, there can be no doubt about that. And it is best understood by the man and the woman who knows it. Who know it from personal experience, the meaning of this. 
the rich Russian nobleman who was traveling in the northern country in the latter part of the autumn. He was advised not to leave a certain place. For by this time the wolf pack might be on the prowl. He was advised not to leave. The going would be dangerous. But he left nevertheless. The first part of the journey was uneventful. The second half, a suspicious sound was heard. The sound came nearer. It was the sound of the noise they dreaded to hear. It was the sound of the wolf half in pursuit. They did what they could, of course, to save themselves. First, they shot some of the wolves, and the rest stopped to eat to devote. Then they let go one horse. The wolf devoted. Then they let go another. The wolf devoted, but still, as all the wolves were halted, they were gaining upon them again. And the servant said to his, to his master, there is only one thing to be done now. We cannot let go any more of the horses. I will throw myself to the wolves, and he may be able to reach safety before they overtake you again. And that is what he did. sacrificed himself in that way. He threw himself, himself to the wolves. That haunted them for a while and that meant safety. For the rest, they reached that place of safety before they were overtaken again. In that, in, in one sense, that servant died for his master. He died for the sins of his master, too, in one sense. If the man had taken the advice that he had received, he wouldn't have started out on that part of the journey. But surely, 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 that is no illustration of the way in which Christ died for the sins of his people. That, that may illustrate a certain aspect of what he did, that he offered himself without thought unto God. But our views of the atonement would be very shallow and inadequate. We thought that the 
that the atonement could be demonstrated by one man dying for another, even for the sins of another. The scriptural presentation of Christ's death for his people goes far, far beyond that. Indeed, there can be no illustration, no analysis of Christ's death for his people. There can be nothing. It is unique, we repeat. He died for those But died in such a way as not only to represent the sinner of those for whom he died, died for them not only that they might have life, but he died their death. The death to which they were liable. The sentence that had been pronounced upon them. For the wages of sin is death. Christ died. He died their death. Not only did he die in their home or for them, but he died in their place. That we repeat this descriptive presentation of. That we believe is what John would have us understand when he says here, dead came forth blood. This was the meaning of this death. It was not mastered of in the usually accepted denotation of that word. It was not that he died in order to attest his doctrine by his blood. He did that. But there was infinitely more in it than that. He died as a sacrifice. He died in the place and in the room of those whom he represented, those for whom he stood surely. And he said there was nothing there. There was nothing indefinite about this death. It was a transaction well defined, yet divinely divine in all its aspects, in all its parts. There was nothing haphazard about it. Nothing happened just for the sake of happening. Everything happened according to the divine prearrangement. 
and of this quiet more of me. I need this, and this is all I need. And surely, a valid inference from the recorded incident here is this, both for pardon and for cleansing. I have to look to Christ. It is in him that there is part. It is in him that there is cleansing. And not only so, but this pardon and cleansing are inseparable from the death of Christ. I delivered that which I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the Scripture. Died for our pardon, our cleansing. Till we are here. It is in him that pardon and cleansing are to be found, are to be had according to the divine plan. Now when we think of the death of Christ, <clears throat> we are in the habit of thinking of him not as actually dead, but as dying. We are in the habit of thinking of him in the sufferings of his death. At least we ought to think of him in that way. And that is the way sometimes at least let everyone here talk from his own knowledge. We say this is the way in which the Holy Spirit enlightens the mind in the knowledge of the death of Christ. The Spirit reveals Christ as the dying. The Spirit also reveals him, of course, as resurrected. But let us not put up a false antithesis. The death and the resurrection of Christ are not two separate They are not two separate. They are the two sides of the same glorious divine transaction. As Paul puts it, he was delivered for our offenses and raised up again for our justification. It is in him and in him only that my conscience can find that as a guilty sinner. It is through blood that my guilt can be expiated. For without shedding of blood, there is 
no remission. There is no path. However hard that may sound to our ears, however unnatural even it may seem, Scripture's testimony is an unequivocal without shedding of blood there's no remission if my conscience then is to find rest it must find rest in Christ it must find rest in Christ in his death it must also be directed to him in his resurrection In his ruling as king, there is water as well as blood. There is not only forgiveness or pardon or justification, there is also cleansing. And what is the guarantee that the church will be presented before God as warriors, church, or angel, or any such thing? This is the guarantee. It's not the church's own efforts. The church will be presented before God that glorious church. Why? Because the means for her cleansing is to be found. Holiness is desirable. Holiness is possible. Holiness is certain. Why? God has made it so. And the heart that cries out under a sense of its own impurity, the heart that says, Cleanse me, Lord. Cleanse me. Has something to pray, not only for, but some, some grounds to pray on. This is the hope of my redemption. The hope of my pardon, the hope of my sanctification, it is Christ. It is the crucified Christ. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. And there is hope here for the most hopeless. There is cleansing here for the most defiled. He cleanses from all sin. And this is 
what he himself especially commanded his disciples to remember. To remember his death. In short, to remember himself as the one in whom they have all they need and all they desire for time and for eternity. And as we as a congregation look forward to the dispensing of the Lord's Supper among us next Sabbath, oh, that we were let of God, divested of Him to look to Him of whom it is written, oh, with their timber, blood, and water. He was already dead. He died. Died that we must live. And not only live in him, but live for him. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. May the Lord enable us then to view our life. The death which in God's good providence if it be his will, the death we shall be commemorating here next Sabbath, may he enable us to view it alive that we might indeed deserve the body of Christ, that we may, to his glory and our good, partake of that which he himself has appointed as a means for the strengthening of our faith, the strengthening of our life in him and for him.